Okay, assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to a special session, alhamdulillah, finishing up Surah Al-Hujurat um, this Tuesday night. You notice we're wearing masks. Sadly, um, our um, our Usuli bubble has been um, pierced by COVID. We have some, some people who have tested positive, so we've moved everything online and um, just trying to take precautions. So please, everybody, we've all been exposed now. So, um, I, you know, please pray that, you know, we stay healthy. Most importantly, Sheikh stays healthy um, so we can continue on. Um, so, and this is, this is so, I mean, you know, everybody knows it's dangerous. I'm sure by now everyone's family member has been hit, you know, or a friend, someone close that you know. You know, we've taken so many precautions, and so it's a little bit shocking that, you know, it, it's like hit so close to home. Um, and so it just really underscored that you really have no idea how you can get it, where you can get it, and how lethal it could potentially be. So please, you know, be safe, everybody, and um, pray for us, and, you know, and inshallah, pray for everyone who's suffering right now because of it, or who have lost family members, which I think most of us know someone if we have not lost family members ourselves. So it's such a, such a sobering time. Um, inshallah, may Allah preserve and protect all of us, inshallah. Um, I, I just wanted to very quickly share a, um, a an article that um, someone sent me, um, and it, the title is "Backlash as U.S. Billionaire Dismisses Uyghur Abuse," and it's um, it cites a billionaire investor. His name is Chamath Palihapitiya. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. He um, is part owner of the San Francisco basketball team. Um, I'm not sure which team it is. It doesn't state. And so people who are into sports may know this um, much better than me. Um, but he apparently has a, a podcast where he was speaking with one of his um, team members who um, had actually um, spent a lot of time trying to support the Uyghur cause and draw attention to it. And his um, very... Um, just want to read you this this comment so he was an early executive at facebook and he's now a prominent venture capitalist and he's a co-host of um, a podcast called all in and he that's where he made these remarks um, he was speaking to um, the boston celtics forward ines Cantor, who had been outspoken about human rights issues and campaigned on behalf of the forced labor law um, and and um so his comment during his podcast was um Let's be honest, nobody, nobody cares. Actually, let's, let's just give a little context here. So someone, they were commenting that the co-host the co had said that um, President Biden had taken the stand on Uyghurs, right? So um, Biden had um, said that, you know, uh, companies need to prove that any products that are coming out of China are not being produced in these forced labor camps. So this person said um, that Biden's stance on this issue had not helped him in the polls. So to that, then this billionaire said, let's be honest, nobody, nobody cares about what is happening to the Uyghurs, okay? You bring it up because you really care. And I think that's really nice that you care, but the rest of us don't care. I'm just telling you a very hard truth, he said. So he then, of course, um, came under a lot of attack. Um, and then he apologized on Twitter and his apology said was something what basically important issues deserve nuanced discussions, some clarifying comments um, that um, okay, where did it go? I believe that human rights matter, whether in China, the US or elsewhere. Um, and, and that's and he admitted that his comments lacked empathy. 
So, you know, you try to imagine that someone would say the same thing in, you know, in light of like a Holocaust, you know, um, and that time, you know, it's just, it's so unacceptable. Um, but the irony is that actually what he said is quite true. I think that people really don't care about the Uyghur um, genocide, you know, at large. And, um, you know, you have to just wonder, like, again, it makes me think back to what were the people doing at the time of the Holocaust, you know, back then, you know, and you, you always think, oh, couldn't they have done more? Couldn't someone have done something because this horrific thing happened? But that's happening right now. It's happening in our midst. And what do we do about that? Why do people not care? Why, you know, is, and it's largely because I think people don't see Muslims as humans. And um, so I want to sort of, I wanted to share that, but also um, take this opportunity then again to highlight um, the work of, um, you know, independent journalists, specifically people like C.J. Werleman, um, out, he's a, you know, journalist um, out of Australia, and you can support him on Patreon, on his Patreon page. The reason why he in particular is, um, to me, really important is because he made the decision that he's focusing just on atrocities committed against Muslims. So, you know, other independent channels focus on all kinds of issues, but this, he is dedicated to this particular issue because he, on his own, through his own life experiences and his own education, came to the conclusion that this is the biggest threat facing the world, um, because it obviously can also lead to other things, but it's so, you know, just to, by comparison, when I just went over to his Facebook, CJ Worleman's Facebook page to see, okay, what is he reporting on? Because he is trying to support himself. He makes YouTube videos. You know, he writes for various news outlets. But just to give you a flavor of, of what he has, um, so one of his videos is um, radicalized by the bogus land jihad conspiracy. Hindu, Hindutva, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say this, Hindutva terrorists vandalized a shrine in Himachal and then posted their hate crime on Facebook. Watch me explain how anti-Muslim conspiracies have led to the Nazification of India's laws here. So he has a whole video on that issue. And he has been focused a lot on what's happening in India. Then he says in another video, watch me reveal how the UAE exports terror to the Muslim world here. And he gives a, a link to his YouTube page. And his comment on that is, if the UAE can be attacked so easily by an enemy drone, then it will be attacked easily again. When that happens, the criminals, warlords, and thugs who park their stolen wealth there, thinking it's a safe haven, will flee, bringing down the whole crappy Emirates scam with them. So anyway, he's got a whole video um, focused on the UAE and what's happening there. And then he highlights um, people like Sasha Baron Cohen, who talks about how the problem with the reason why the Third Reich was so successful is that people were indifferent and apathetic and then a very and then he says Af afghan refugees selling their kidneys and ch um and children for funds to survive is the most horrific thing i have ever seen um and i think he talks about that and a beautiful quote to end it on is anti-semitism gets you canceled and rightly so, but Islamophobia gets you rich. So I think that sums it up really nicely. So, I mean, I think it's really, you know, in, in um, we just really have to get behind um, people like C.J. Worleman because obviously people don't care because they 
one either don't hear they can't they, they're not interested in empathizing they haven't been forced to see the stories to think about what happens to people on a human level and the people that have the ability to make other people feel what's happening and understand what's happening are journalists people who can bring it you know to the attention visually through stories and there are so few people that do that that when we find someone who has dedicated himself to the muslim cause even though he himself is not muslim I think every Muslim needs to get behind him so he can be supported. Maybe he can bring on a team of people to help him, you know, and, and make that whole effort bigger. Because if we can't, you know, we, we need every ally we can possibly get. So this is just my plug. Again, C.J. Werleman, W-E-R-L-E-M-A-N. You can find him on Patreon. You can find him on Facebook. Just look him up. And I think we should all get behind him. So... Anyway, inshallah, may Allah help the Uyghurs. May we all be able to contribute some little bit to um, bringing attention to that cause. And, um, you know, so we're not on the final day being asked, what did you do when the Muslims were um, getting killed in, in, you know, in a genocide in the Holocaust of your times? So, inshallah. Um, with that, I, I am so excited um, for us tonight to um, finish, inshallah, um, Surah uh, Hujurat, and then we will also do Q&A, so please, if you have any questions, feel free to email, put them on the chat, um, or YouTube, and inshallah, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Okay? Thank you so much. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين So just a quick um, review so that we're all on the same page as we said, Surah Al-Hujurat is revealed in quite late in the Medina period, in all likelihood in the ninth century Hijra. So in all and in all likelihood about a year before the death of the Prophet. And methodologically, when we have the surah that is revealed towards the very end and it deals with social ethics then we pay careful attention to a logical point and that is what Allah cares to um to underscore, to emphasize, to center for Muslims before the message comes to an end. So the fact that you have a society which is confronted with many challenges that we've talked about and is confronted with a great deal of turbulence and there are pressing issues like warfare 
But yet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sort of in, in, in one of the sealing swords as a seal, sort of a, a sword that come as a seal for the Quran, the end of the Quran, or it, progressively. And Allah says, these are social ethics that are critical. Uh, we then must pay careful attention to the message that is being communicated. And indeed, as we said, the, the surah itself begins with a, it goes from a, the, the more specific to the more abstract and the, from the more narrow to the broader. And as we said that in istara tamsiriya or in a in a um, in an allegorical narrative, it it comes and says, "Be ever conscious of Allah and the Prophet as you make your decisions in life, as you resolve issues in life, stepping ahead of the Prophet, stepping ahead of the Prophet or ahead of Allah is an allegorical narrative, meaning don't simply act oblivious to what Allah and the Prophet want of you. And as we said that the narrative about even the tonality of voice is being always conscious of the persona of the prophet in your midst. And as we said that for those who are alive at the time of the prophet, that's a, a far more straightforward point. But for those who, um, but beyond the life of the Prophet um, as we, we talked about, this narrative had a significant social impact on the social norms that were advocated in Islamic civilization as norms that have to do with respect, with reverence. Uh, and we've talked about that, whether it's someone who's older, someone who's more knowledgeable, someone towards a parent. And the, the sort of the, the ripple effects of a social ethic that the Quran establishes, although the example given is controlling one voice, and as we said, this is about controlling one's impulses and constantly asking yourself in, an, in, a, in, a, in a companionship with the legacy of the Prophet what would the Prophet want of me in this situation? Or what would the Prophet expect? Or what would the Prophet be pleased with? As we've talked about. And 
Um, Okay, I, I don't want to re repeat a lot of what I said, so um, I'm, I'm being selective. Okay, and then we move still maintaining that form of Ya ayyuhalladina amanu. And as we said, it's a form of when you, it's like saying my son, or, you know, you, you, you emphasize the place of a person in a form of nida when you repeat that call, and in Surah Al-Hujurat it's repeated five times, Ya ayyuhalladzina amanu, it draws your attention. And it's like saying, in order to be worthy of the status, here's what Allah expects. And then we notice that it goes from this the example of proper social ethics with the Prophet ﷺ to the broader point of social ethics that has to do with this what you consider to be authoritative and acting on the basis of suspicion and what you think of your fellow Muslim and the role of doubt and suspicion in social dynamics. And want to underscore, although we've talked about it last halakab, I want to underscore it that the, the hadith of the Prophet that does not get uh, sufficient attention and sufficient vetting in our modern age. Um, that the worst characteristic, I'm trying to, um, where is it? Yeah. That that there are the best characteristics is to 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 think well of Allah and to think well and to think well of other human beings. That there are two that there is nothing worse than them, and that is that to think presumptively badly of Allah and presumptively badly of your fellow Muslim. And this then is anchored in not just warning, and we talked about the occasion for a revelation and the context and all of that, but is is as, as a, a, a fundamental ethic that the fabric of brotherhood, the fabric of fraternity cannot be maintained without giving your fellow Muslim the benefit of the doubt. And 
how you deal with information is critical to what becomes to, of this fabric of fraternity among Muslims. Similarly, in Surah Al-Hujurat, we are warned um, or the, the, we are, it's underscored the, the danger of a society, if voyeuristic society or a society that spies on each other. And I'm sure as you will remember, um, that this is underscored as a broad ethic and as, as we talked about that the way it resonated in the Islamic civilization is that Muslims understood it both at a private level and at a public level, meaning they, they've talked a great deal about the risk of a state or a government that spies on its own people. And they also talked about it as a social ethic that it, um, voyeurism and the, the um, temptation to instead of look inwards, to look outwards and to breach the uh, sanctity of the privacy of your fellow Muslim and the the impact of that. And we also then talked about spying and underscoring the impact of backbiting and speaking ill of people behind their back. And so all of this is taken as a package. They're all interlinked, as we, we said in the last halakha. Along with this, a very important lesson, and also, as I said, I've written an entire book about this, but I can tell you that it is one of the true losses of the Islamic civilization is that we have not invested and developed and matured the principle that of justice as the underlying demand for every conflict between a Muslim and a Muslim. So Allah comes and says, if Muslims disagree and it gets to the point that the conflict deteriorates into an actual fight, then first is to get them to come to the table to agree to resolve this conflict peacefully. That's the first principle. And if one of the parties refuses the principle of a peaceful resolution to the conflict, then it becomes an aggressor. 
But how do you resolve the conflict between them once you get them to the table of peaceful resolution? And as the Quran in Surah Al-Hujurat says, it is justice that becomes the underlying and overwhelming principle. And as, and I'm underscoring this because I, I know that it's, these are sort of issues that you, you hear, but the significance of sort of comes to you in bits and pieces much later on as happened to me in, in my own journey, that this is not just between private parties, but this is a social ethic about disputes even between the governed and the governor. And as I said, and I want to underscore this, this whole notion of dissenters being out of the pale and being khawarij and that khawarij are kilabun nar the dogs of hellfire and that dissent equals the uh, fundamentally that if you dissent it equals foregoing all your rights and even your humanity leave alone your islam so that in cub has become quite common among modern muslims and even people who I've heard it even from someone, former Mufti of Egypt, Ali Juma, who I know for a fact knows better that to completely ignore the interpretive tradition about Ahkam al-Bughah that emphasizes that when it comes to moral principles, We look at the ta'wil, we look at the cause for the dispute between the governor and the governed through the prism of justice. And the governed and governed are equals. We, we don't presume the governor to be correct just because they're in power. That entire ethic that was underscored by the Ali tradition that I told you about, where Imam Ali says that when he's asked about the Khawarij, are they kuffar? And he says, no. And he says, well, are they fusaq? He says, no, they're not. But they are our brothers. And we have, we have a, dis, it's a disagreement. They, they, and they have rights upon us. And the rights that they have is that we can't ban them from our mosques. We can't ban them from our spaces. So they're citizens. And we don't commence them with fighting. We don't fight them unless they fight us. It was well ahead of its age. I mean, this is, this is radically progressive. And what many scholars in the Islamic tradition did with it was also radically progressive. And again, if you want to understand exactly what I'm talking about, read my book, Rebellion in Islamic Law, that was published by Cambridge many years ago. Um, it's very interesting because, you know, this book, for instance, um, 
I signed a contract about 20 years ago with a publisher to translate it to Arabic. And the publisher, even this publisher, you know, paid me uh, like 100 Egyptian pounds, which is nothing, you know, that's like $30 or so. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, so the contract is official, but Amn al-Dawla came and confiscated whatever the the uh, the publisher had done, and, and there was an order that came from Amn al-Dawla in Egypt that this book must cannot be translated. Uh, the book is being translated now in Qatar, um, or at least that's the last I've, I've heard, is that uh, someone signed a contract with Cambridge to translate it in, to Arabic and publish it in Qatar. But it is, it is remarkable. It is a radically progressive idea that the ruler does not have a divine right. Their position in power doesn't entitle them to presumptions of being the morally superior party. But in fact, with vis-a-vis -vis the ruled, vis-a-vis that who dissents against them, they're on an equal moral plane. And the Quran, and significantly, as we said, the Quran is talking about those that were labeled hypocrites, those that were labeled dissenters against the Prophet himself. Remember the story of the donkey that I told you last halakha. So we have two narratives, right? The narrative about the donkey, we talked about last halakha, and we have the second narrative in which the Prophet is told, don't bother us, don't, don't come in our spaces and talk to us, just stay home. In both narratives, those who are trans, those who dissent, are those who were labeled hypocrites by the Quran. But yet, the way they're referred to here, as we said, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اِقْتَتَلُوا They're referred to as believers. And then it comes back and says, فَاصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ وَاقْسُطُوا إِنَّ اللَّهِ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسُطِينَ إِنَّ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ أُخْوَةِ And then underscores that believers are brothers. Our predecessors noticed this. Modern Muslims completely ignored it. But our predecessors noticed this and said, wait, if those who dissent against the Prophet, the Prophet, tell the Prophet your donkey stinks. Tell the Prophet, go, go away, we don't want to listen to you. And yet the Quran comes and talks about them as believers and as, quote, brothers. And makes the process the measure of merit. In other words, whoever refuses to come to a peaceful resolution is the aggressor. 
It doesn't say, well, Allah knows that they're aggressors. How dare they say this to you? You know, kill them, fight them, imprison them, torture them. What it says is the process is the measure of merit. That who refuses to come to the table for a peaceful resolution, then fight against that party. Whether that party are, is the munafiqun or that party is the, the party of the Prophet. It's so radical. It's unbelievable. Understand, this is radical. And then says, once you bring them to the table, justice. Could, can you possibly imagine a more tolerant, this is, if, if we are to believe the narratives, and they are, they are so cumulative, as I talk in the rebellion book, they're so cumulative that it's very difficult to, 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 to say, to, to ignore them. The, the, the meaning that they've been reported by so many people that that this ayah was revealed in a dispute between the hypocrites and the Ansar. And a fight that broke out between the hypocrites and the Ansar. And that yet the Quran comes and says, here's the process, here's the principle. Peaceful resolution and justice. And of course, in among the early commentators, especially in the early periods of Islamic, the development of Islamic law, so many said, why didn't the Quran just simply come and, and, and say, side with the prophet and just condemn the other party as sinners and fusaq and as, as it has said about the hypocrites elsewhere. But here, when it came to a fight that broke out, it emphasizes this, this procedural dynamic and the principle of justice. And post-revelation, post-revelation, once the fight subsided between the hypocrites and the Ansar, the Prophet ﷺ refused to punish those who were involved in the fight. So Ali bin Abi Talib, who was the greatest student of the Prophet when it comes to anything that has to do with Islamic law or Islamic ethics, Ali bin Abi Talib, when it came to the Khawarij, he said, I can't. I can't call them kuffar because the Prophet didn't call the hypocrites kuffar. I can't call them fusaq because the Prophet didn't call the, the, the Khawarij, I'm sorry, the Prophet didn't call the hypocrites fusaq. I can't say that I have a right to exterminate them. But when you listen to modern Muslims, and especially the shuyukh, who know better, because I know for a fact that Ali Jum'ah is very well aware of Ahkam al-Bugha. They ignore all of that 
And what do they advocate? Listen to the shiuch of Haftar. Or anyone that rebelled against Haftar must be exterminated and killed. The, the way the massacre in Rabah was justified by all of Sisi's shiuch was that in Islam, these are khawarij and we must exterminate them like khawarij. We, we heard the same narrative in the supporters of the Emirat in Yemen. All the dissenters, don't, in Islam we just kill dissenters. This is a crime of historic proportions against the Quran. Because the Quran is radical, the Muslim intellect and the Muslim psyche could not rise to the progressiveness of the Quran on this point. Up to now, Muslims have not, have not stepped up to how progressive the Quran is when it comes to the moral relativity. There's no moral absoluteness between the governed and the governed. The governed and governed are of moral relativity, meaning that you are governing, you don't have a divine right to govern. What decides between me and you is justice, is qist and adl. That's, decide, that's what, so then if that is the case, what process are you going to put in place to honor that? It's very easy to say this philosophically. Okay, so yeah, between me and you, it's a principle of justice. But how can we guarantee this procedurally? That's, that's the, the civilizational challenge. How do you then embody that procedurally as a matter of process? So that the governed, the, so that the ruler can't impose their vision of justice and say, well, I am the powerful party, so what I say goes, and what I say is justice. And that's the end of it. It is very critical that this comes in Surah Al-Hujurat, and it comes in the context of the Quran import, imparting social ethics that seal the discourse before revelation comes to a close. To a close. It's like Allah is saying, you know, the book is going to close. It's, it's all going to end. Now, let me tell you some last testament and if you are a student of the Quran, you pay very careful attention to the last testament because Allah is saying these are the departing words. After this, you're on your own. And as we said, Allah reminds us of this when Keep in mind, right now, the Prophet is with you. And right now, that right now you have attained a blessing that Allah made Iman your heart gravitate towards Iman 
but that blessing is going to come to an end. And so how do you make the prophet present when the prophet is dead? And as I underscored a million times last halakha, the only way, the only way, there is no other way is to come to know the prophet. Not know the prophet to imitate a prophet like a parrot imitates what is said to a parrot. You know, say, hello man, say hello man. That That's not honoring, that's not and that is not fikum rasulullah fikum rasulullah is to for there to be instead of the, the, the embarrassing amount of works on the morality of the prophet the ethics of the prophet the what the prophet would have done if the prophet would have been confronted with any of the situations that confront us in the modern age. That should be the discourse. What is the prophetic ethic? Okay. And remember, because we've created societies in which no one thinks of the Qur'an when spying takes place. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us, before we go spying on someone, and spying, as we said, is not just... um, it's it includes the 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 social practice of what we call stalking. In other words, you become concerned with piercing the veil of privacy. How many of us think as you go make a point to find information about someone for nothing more than to fulfill an ego trip, which often involves feeling superior to this person or or reminding yourself of the faults of this person or counting points against this person. How many of us remember that this is a sin? That this type of ill will, this type of vanity, does not please Allah. But at even a more critical level, at a more critical level, how many Muslims, how many Muslims remember or recognize or realize that when they read a story about how this government spied on its citizens. This government bought Israeli hardware so that it can spy on its citizens and pierce their phones. How many of us say, oh, no, this, is, this government is acting un-Islamically? 
Some of us might think of what international human rights say, conventions say, what international treaties might say, what international law might say about regular, you know, information privacy or something like that. But the, this is a Quranic matter. No, in Islam, the state does not have a presumptive absolute right to know everything about its citizens. But we don't think that way because we're not students of the Quran. To tell the state, if you're going to, if, you know, right now in Egypt, any police officer can stop you on the street and say, show me your phone. And if, if, if you will go behind the sun, as they say, you will be, you, the, you, you're, you're done, you're, you're gone if you say no. And they have a right to, you give them your phone, they, they have a right to see every and all and everything on your phone. And although it's against Egyptian law, but no one cares. But what blows my mind is that so many Muslims talk about it as a secular matter, but a priori, it's an Islamic matter. Your right to privacy, because it is in, in Surah Al-Hujurat, revealed in the ninth century, at the height of the time when the Prophet has so many other issues that are weighing down on him, and Allah comes and says, you know what? No, this is a core lesson. Revelation cannot end without you Muslims understand understanding that you are a single ummah, you are a fraternity, you are brothers and sisters, and here are the social ethics that will allow you to protect the ideal if you do not honor these social ethics, then your, your sense of fraternity, your sense of brotherhood and sisterhood will evaporate, will be undone. Okay. And one last reminder from last halakha. That image that I, I had a teacher when we, we were quite young who part of the, he had us, part of the zikr that we did, it was from Maghrib to Asha. And he said, I want you to every, think of every person that you've done ghaybah against. You know, think of, in your head of every individual that you've back, you've uh, uh, backbitten. And then I want you to imagine that you are eating this person's flesh. And that was our exercise, that we have to sit and, and you know, visualize every person and then visualize that you're eating their flesh. You know, yeah, you never, you know, I, I, I took it seriously and it stayed with me. But of course, you all know that where this comes from. This Surah Al-Hujurat that it, 
it is, if you want to understand the, the scale of that sin, then understand that it is like consuming the flesh of your sister or your brother. The same sheikh, it's very interesting, and I just, uh, I never, I never thought of it, but he told us, or part of our assignment is that we have to go apologize to every person that we've backbitten. Um, yeah, and that, that's the hardest thing, is that to, to actually go to your cousin or to go to your friend or go to you you know and say you know i okay i i have to confess i have i have a confession to make i've uh, you wanted to say i've eaten your flesh and of course the response you get is what and you say yeah i you know i've committed the sin of life against you and i want you to forgive me etc um may allah bless him i mean maybe it's something that you should we should all think about um okay so now we come to 13. Ya ayyuhan nasu, inna khalaqnakum min dhakari wa untha, waj'annakum shu'uba wa qaba'ila lita'arafu. Inna akramakum indallahi atqakum. Inna Allah alimun khabir. Now notice here, for the first time in Surah Al-Hujarat, it changes from Ya Yuhaladina Amanu to Ya Ayuhanasu. Instead of addressing itself to believers, it addresses itself to humanity at large. And and it tells humanity or human beings at large. that the Allah created you shu'ub and qaba'il and you know in, in tafsir they go into discussions about the difference between shu'ub and qaba'il it doesn't matter for us it's just basically diverse people why for the purpose of ta'aruf however understand that the most meritorious in Allah's eye is always according to taqwa. Now, a lot of people do, are, do not realize the discourse, the traditional discourse around these ayahs, or this ayah. And I'll give you some of the most prominent narratives. We can't cover all of them, but I'll give you the most famous ones. So one of them is that there was a slave boy who was being sold in the market. And This would su surprise because the slavery is a, is a very complicated historical phenomena. So 
and it's and it's not it's it's not one example fits all. But that boy set a condition that anyone that buys him, his condition is that he loves praying behind the Prophet that he is vigilant about always being there in the first line to pray behind the Prophet, and that whoever buys him cannot interfere with this act, that you cannot interfere with my making sure that I pray behind the Prophet. Of course, the idea that a slave would have a role in, in the terms of his own sales strikes us in the modern age as very odd. But it's actually not surprising for that context. In, in that time and the way slavery was practiced and so on. Anyway, so of course that makes him less attractive and but eventually someone buys him on these terms that they cannot interfere with his right to pray behind the prophet, cannot miss a prayer behind the prophet. And the boy shortly after that falls ill and dies and when he dies the prophet washes him personally buries him personally and leads prayer over salat al-janaza personally and talks about him and, and is very sad about his passing away so some people commented some of the people who immigrated, some said, Hajarna, walaqina malaqina, that we, we, we've migrated and we've suffered a great deal. No one, none of us were honored the way this kid was honored upon his death. And some of the Ansar also made comments, so on. So they said, we, we've, we've gave him so much help and supported him, and he treats, that, and he preferred, or he treated, or gave a greater level of honor to a black slave boy. And many reports claim that this ayah was revealed over this incident and that the Prophet ﷺ, upon hearing that there were some of the migrants of the Muhajirun who were, you know, commenting about how much he went out and how much he was sad about the, the death of this boy, and the comment, some of the Ansar commenting about uh, the same, that the Prophet ﷺ then said to them, "Inna Allah la yanzuru ila suwarikum, inna ma antum banu Adam, akramakum inda Allah atqakum, wa antum taqulun fulan ibn fulan, wa ana liyom arfau nasabi wa adau ansabakum." What this hadith says is that, listen, Allah doesn't care about your race, about your class, about your 
outward appearance, all of you are the children of Adam. And merit in Allah's eye is simply according to taqwa and nothing else. And you still think in terms who is the son of who, meaning class and race. Well, from now on, I renounce my lineage and renounce your lineage. Meaning, from now on, if you want to be real Muslims, it doesn't matter who you descended from or which family you come from or which class you come from or which, which race you come from or which nation you come from. Other reports said that, no, this ayah was revealed that in the day of Fath, when Mecca was conquered, Bilal got up and stood on the Kaaba and did the Azan. And the Meccans, who had just converted to Islam, or were in the process of converting to Islam, commented, this black ex-slave is the one that they choose to do the azan on, on the Kaaba. In other words, they, 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 a very classist and racist outlook. And then that the Prophet ﷺ said, a very similar statement to the first riwayah in the Akramakum and Allah Atqaqum Antum Banu Adam and so on. A third narrative is that there was a family, um, their, their name, their, their, it's a clan, it's actually, they're known as Banu Bayada. Banu Bayada uh, were it's a clan that descended from Sham, came from Syria, and had settled in this area for a long time. And they were known because they were rich merchants and had fair skin. Um, their, their skin was whiter than most Arabs. Um, and they were wealthy. They've done very well and their trade um, and um, there was a system that either you were a person known belonging to a clan or a tribe with a known lineage. So this is like I am the son of such and such and such, or you were a Mawali. A Mawali was someone who is effectively an immigrant or a descendant of an immigrant that doesn't have an Arab clan or an Arab tribe. It is like in modern age, what would they call in Wafidun? You know, the, the, the people that come, um, uh, they're not citizens. They, they come to work in your country they might be born in your country, they might live in your country for many, many years, but they're not citizens. And the Mawali, in the old Arab system, each 
individual like that would find an influential or an honorable or a powerful clan or tribe to claim them, in other words, to be their protector and their surety and their guarantor. Uh, if any of you are familiar with um, uh, the 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 laws of um, kafil in Saudi Arabia in the very early debates uh, when the laws of kafil were being developed, there were several who cited the system of Mawali. Although the the system of Mawali served a very different purpose, and it's not an Islamic system; it was a pre-Muslim Arabic Arab system. Anyway. The reason I'm mentioning this is that the Prophet ﷺ recommended one of the Mawali, so a, a person that was affiliated to a tribe that protected him, to marry a woman from Banu Bayada. And when he came to propose, Banu Bayada were deeply offended. And he went to the Prophet ﷺ and said, how can you tell a non-citizen, a mawla, to come and propose to our daughter? It's like in the modern age, you know, if, if um, you know, it still exists amazingly. I mean, it, it, uh, you could be in, uh, in Saudi and if you're a Palestinian and you go propose to a, a, a Saudi woman, you could offend her family. It, it still exists um, remarkably. Um, so they went to the Prophet and, and, uh, and complained about that. And then, the, again, a very similar narrative where the Prophet then responds, in Akramakum and that basically the Prophet responds because it's not their status as a Mawla or their lineage or their class that defines their merit, it's their taqwa. And that this is the reason for revelation. You know, to make a long story short, because I've spent a lot of time in the bygone years researching this, and in terms of chains of transmission, the narrative about Bilal standing on the Kaaba and doing Adhan um, and being called a black slave and Meccans being offended and then and so on is probably the, the most authenticated or the most authoritative of these reports. However, on balance, I don't believe that any of these reports is necessar are necessarily the occasion for revelation. I believe all these reports describe realities, social realities that actually transpired. I do believe that there was someone who was a slave, who died, who's quite young, and that the Prophet went out of his way to honor him, and that people started talking about it, you know, this is a, a, a young black slave. Why did the prophet go all out for him? I do believe that the prophet, because, and not just in one incident, but in several incidents, the prophet, 
the prophet suggests that a maula goes and proposes to marry someone from an honorable family and the honorable family objects but the number of times it it has happened and it's been reported with with different families tells me that there was an intentionality on part of the prophet in doing so because he would always emphasize the same thing every time the family would get offended that it doesn't matter how rich they are it doesn't matter what race they are it doesn't matter what lineage they are it is their taqwa that is the measure and there would and and it's clear from the number of times that it's reported in different hijri years that there was there was resistance at a social level to what the prophet was preaching People didn't want to marry their daughters on the basis of taqwa. Humans are humans. You know, they're weak. But that is the ethic. And I and so on. And I believe that the interpreters of the Quran sort of saw that this ayah fit these situations and their collective memories retained that when this ayah was revealed, that the collective memories of people at the time of the Prophet understood that this revelation was directed, this ta'aruf, this ayah on ta'aruf, wasn't just saying that you are different, so come to know one another, but that the social moral, moral, that it targeted was class differences, racial differences, lineage differences. In other words, that this ayah, this ayah on ta'aruf, the way it was received, it went directly to the dynamics of class and race and lineage. And when you look at the number of traditions coming out of the first centuries of Islam, that tells you some of the narratives are reasonable, like the ones I told you, and some get to be sort of a bit fantastical. In other words, they they start having you know the 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 medieval earmarks of exaggeration and so on. But all of the narrative go back to that this ayah was an ayah of egalitarianism, the ethic of egalitarianism. And in our modern discourse, anti-racism, anti-classism, anti-nationalism, etc. Okay. But then there's another thing now this, unfortunately, I haven't seen anyone point this out, which is mind-boggling. It really is mind-boggling. This area is revealed in the ninth century Hijra, in the context of Surah Al-Hujurat, and I'll tell you at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up for you, but hold on. In the context of Surah Al-Hujurat, it is revealed very late 
it is revealed after all of the ayat al-qital, all of the ayat on fighting. If people were going to stick honestly and methodically to the methodology of naskh and mansukh, to the methodology of abrogation, we know that many said that Ayat al-Sayf abrogated all of Ayat in Janahu Fisilm, Fajnahla, and etc. All the Ayat of peace. But how about Ayat al-Ta'aruf? Ayat al-Ta'aruf comes after all of the Ayat on fighting. By the same logic, if you're going to be consistent, you should say, Ayat al-Ta'aruf abrogated all the ayat of fighting. I'm not saying it did, because I don't believe in abrogation. But it blows your mind that at this point, after Fath Mecca, this very late, what Allah comes and says is, خَلَقْنَكُمْ شَعُوبًا وَقَابَاءِ إِلَى لِتَعَارَفُوا To come to know one another. And if you're going to follow the same logic, you'd say, as we're coming to the last testaments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to us, is ayat al-ta'aruf. And especially if you put it in its proper egalitarian context, as all the riwayat on anti-class and anti-race and anti privilege and, and all of that stuff, then you understand the true radical impact of Ayat al-Ta'aruf in Surah al-Hujurat, and especially that it is in Surah al-Hujurat, as I will explain in a second, inshallah. So, now, pause for a second. And think of the fact that this surah is known as Surat Al-Hujurat, the rooms. Why Al-Hujurat? And then the image came to me. It is as if the world, the entire world, consists of private apartments. Apartments guarded by privacy. Allah tells us, when it comes to the Muslim Ummah, especially, the social ethics of the Muslim Ummah, yes, there are private apartments in the Muslim Ummah. Don't spy, don't backbite, don't call each other names, don't fight with one another. But the entire world is a world of private apartments. Hujurat. And the point, what Allah is telling us about these hujurat, is come to know one another. So the entire surah in the same way that we saw 
in the Quran, Allah asking us, what is your ceiling? What is your house? What is your ceiling? Here, Allah is saying, this entire world are these private compartments. Each people within their privacy. But the true challenge is while honoring this privacy, Adam al-Tajassus, Adam al-Ghaybah, but to come to know one another. I think that is well ahead of its time. That is that is just centuries and centuries ahead of its time. So ahead of its time that even those who went around talking about abrogation just couldn't, because the world they lived in was a world of conflict and hostility and animosity, and that's the presumption between nations. They couldn't conceive of Allah coming and saying, although we, we see that they realize part of the message, because part of the message is that they say at least as far, although it says, Ya nas they say, well, at least among Muslims, there should be no racism, there should be no classism, there should be no privilege. But it says, Ya Ayyuhannas. It goes well beyond the Muslim space to the entire global space. Then, Surah Al-Hujurat comes to get us to understand another subtle point about social norms and social ethics. That Saying you are Muslim is easy. But understanding what Islam is about and what Iman is about is something that you must continue to diligently work at. Qalat al-Arabu amanna the narrative that um, we are told or that you read in the traditions is that the tribe of Banu Asad when at a time of drought when their crops had failed Banu Asad converted to Islam and it was said or it was widely rumored that the reason that they converted is to get into the social welfare system provided by Medina. That they knew that the, the share 
of the, that if if you become affiliated to Islam, you can go to Medina and you can ask for financial aid or financial help from the government in Medina. And some reports, especially in historical sources, they tell us that when Banu Asad arrived in Medina, um, they didn't just ask for handouts, but that I'm not sure because you read different things, but what they did precisely um, that caused prices to rise, that something they did in Medina, and I'm still not clear what is it precisely that they did, that caused, or people complained that Banu Abbasad caused the prices of commodities in Medina to rise. Inflation, in other words. And that they were obnoxious and rude, and that they went to the Prophet ﷺ, and the way they asked for assistance is by saying, um, you know, we could have become your enemies and we could have fought you, but, you know, you should, implying that the Prophet should be grateful that they didn't choose to fight him, and so that is why he should be generous to them. And that people, you know, were complaining about the, the conduct of Banu Asad. And it is widely reported that this was when the, when the Quran says, now the Arab that are intended here is the tribe of Banu Asad. The, the, when it says the Bedouins have said, the Bedouins that are intended here are, is the tribe of Banu Asad. And that they, they, the Quran responds to them by saying, you, no, you, you, you became Muslim, but you, you don't understand what Islam is about. And the gap between formal Islam and the social ethics embodied in the Quran generally, but specifically in Surah Al-Hujurat, the gap is extremely wide. It's a huge gap between the two. That إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ ثُمَّ لَمْ يَرْتَابُوا وَجَاهَدُوا بِأَمْوَالِهِمْ وَأَنفُسِهِمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الصَّادِقُونَ Iman is a process, and the process involves sacrifice. Again, the Quran, here jihad is the, the dynamic of sacrifice, of hard work and sacrifice. And you sacrifice your, your possessions and you sacrifice your nafs. And Remember that you might be able to treat other people with the logic of you don't know me. You can't tell me anything because you don't know me, you don't know what is in my heart. 
But you cannot do that with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. قُلْ أَتُعْلِمُونَ اللَّهَ بِدِينِكُمْ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ Do you really think that Allah doesn't know? This is of course 16. وَاللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٍ Allah knows your real face. Allah can see through your claims. In the many traditions that you read in this context, um, this has been reported as, is, it has been attributed to uh, several of the tabi'un, several of the successors. And I, in one source it was even attributed as a hadith, but it's not as a hadith. Where istisrafaka an ya'lamun nas bikhususiyatik dalil ala adam sidqak fi ubudiyatik. It's not a hadith, just the language can tell you it's not a hadith. That it must have been a statement that was sort of um, in, just passed along as a statement of, of wisdom or something like that because it doesn't doesn't read as hadith but anyway that if you care that people know your private affairs that have to do with how much you worship or how much dhikr you do, or how much fasting you do, that is an indication of a lack of sincerity and piety on your part. The norm here is that the realization to, to internalize that Allah sees through all and that your piety is between you and Allah and it's a very special and a very private matter except if you have a murshid or a teacher. Between you and your teacher, that's something else. There's no privacy. But the more you are conscious of how personal this relationship is between you and Allah, the more this relationship is on solid grounds, the more it is, it, it is shared with other people, it is, it is exposed and becomes a commodity in social dynamics the less sincere it becomes and the less authentic it becomes. Which goes back to what we talked about last halakha, pietistic affectations. Notice if you don't spy, notice that Surah Al-Hujurat, it really does talk about private compartments. 
and the ethics of ta'aruf. Because, look, who really knows whether you do ghaybah or not? For the most part, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and your partner in crime, the recipient of your ghaybah. Who really knows whether you do tajassus or not? Well, if you, your tajassus is not exposed, it's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Who really knows whether you think well of others or not? Whether you're constantly putting down others, suspecting others, demonizing others. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at how much has to do with your personal, private relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But as the Prophet said, If, as I said last halakha, the Prophet said that if you, if, if following, keeping track, uh, stalking the faults and shortcomings and sins of your fellow Muslims, you, what you will create is corruption. A society that is constantly uh, uh, eating at itself because of suspicion and doubt and ill will will become undone. That's a, that's a disease in society. But a government... And that is why there is no criminal punishment in Islamic law for ghaiba or even for private tajassus. Although, you know, one can argue that there should have been a cause of action for tajassus if it's exposed. But that's a different matter. But there is no cause of action as Islamic law exists today or that Islamic legal tradition exists. There is no cause. So all of these are sins that are not addressed by criminal penalties or even civic penalties, but are addressed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But yet, they're the types of sins, the impact of which are very public. And in a nutshell, they undermine the principle of ta'aruf. But what nothing undermines the ethic of ta'aruf as much as what the Prophet ﷺ emphasized, classism, racism, looking down at people because of their nationality, because of their origin, instead of being impressed by their taqwa or by their knowledge, you're impressed by their status, by their class, by their race, by their nationality, all of things that unfortunately has severely afflicted Muslims in the modern age. Surah Al-Hujurat is a revolution. It's not a surah, it's a revolution. And that is why of all the surah in the Quran, it is, I, I would say it is one 
one of maybe the top three or five sore that has deeply impacted the Sufi tradition and the entire tradition of development of Islamic theological ethics. There is a book that's being published uh, by um, Oxford called, that I reviewed called um, Objectives of Islamic Theology. And it's very interesting because we, we normally talk about objectives of Sharia, but this talks about the objective of, of theology. And the norms and the, the discourse on ethics and morality that are not necessarily addressed by positive law, but are addressed by Rabbani law, by, by, by the law that the state cannot enforce. But Surat al-Hujarat has also constitutional implications for the organization of a Muslim society, has clear implications for Islamic political theory, has clear implications for Islamic political philosophy, as well as moral philosophy. In bombshell, by all, by all measures. Let me see if I forgot anything. Just, uh, this is, I didn't forget this, but remember uh, the story I told you last halakha. Um, um, about Huzaifa, who complains to the Prophet about his um, not-so-clean tongue, about his obscenity, and the role of istighfar, because that's a very important lesson that comes from the prophetic tradition um, in the context uh, under the umbrella of Surah Al-Hujarat. Um, yeah, okay. So that's Surah Al-Hujarat. Shall we take a, shall we take a break? Okay, so let's take a break and then we'll come back and do Q&A. Uh, do you want them to write, send your send questions? So write questions, send questions. Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I'm gonna wear my mask, so. Um, alhamdulillah, that was absolutely incredible. And it's always so exciting to hear about the, the surahs that are um, so revolutionary, especially when you point out that this is the, you know, among the top that, um, of the most revolutionary that deeply Im impacted the Sufi tradition and the, um, the theological ethics and, and so much of our, our political theory, moral and ethical philosophy and so forth and so on. Um, let me start by asking you, um, is there a particular dhikr for the surah? Yeah, the dhikr of the surah is um, interesting because it's uh, ayah 17, the reason I say that it's very interesting is that this ayah, which says that some of them talk about some people, and then it says that some of them 
يمنون عليك أن أسلموا means that they 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 go to the Prophet and they talk to him as if they did him a favor by becoming Muslim and respond the Allah's but but Allah but Allah يمنون عليكم أن هداكم للإيمان إن كنتم صادقين that you've done him no favor it wouldn't it didn't seem to me like it would be a zikr but the more I prayed on it it doesn't just describe an issue that confronted the Prophet with Banu Asad or others it's not just that there are people who come to the Prophet and have the attitude like they've done you a favor. But this is, this is my, my journey with Surah Al-Hujurat, is that it actually describes an ailment in our psyche with Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. So many of us, um, the way we deal with Iman, it's as if, it's as if um, our staying a Muslim, our remaining a Muslim, it's as if our piety, but even our, the, our entire attitude to life, it, it's as if being good, being decent, it's as if supporting the right cause, saying, speaking up for truth, speaking up for justice, uh, giving money, it's as if all of that, we feel good about ourselves as if we're doing someone a favor. But it is, it takes a journey, a spiritual journey to realize that um, deliberation is yours. The cleansing is entirely yours. That in fact, when you give money to someone who needs it, you're not doing him or her a favor. You're doing your. They are doing you a favor by taking the money from you, and that's why the the, the zikr of the surah is intimately tied to the layers of meaning in Surah Al-Hujurat. That when you are when you act with kindness um, you're not doing the recipient a favor, favor they are doing you a favor this 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 awareness of the nature of goodness it's like the the opportunity for Allah to entrust you with light is the greatest favor of all. That you have the opportunity to shine light. The light is a gift from Allah and it is because you are doing good that you've been entrusted with it. And um, 
So the zikr of the surah is intimately tied to understanding the layers and layers of meaning in Surah Al-Hujurat. Okay, I'm going to start start with this question. Um, Sheikh said that the, the challenge is to come to know one another while honoring privacy. I was wondering how privacy might be given more texture. Is part of privacy to come to know one another while being sensitive and respectful to each other's unique cultures? Or is it about the limits of what you should get to know about others? For example, don't try to know about what is private. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, but the answer is, is both. Um, because an, the fact that the fact that the paradigm presented is a par paradigm of hujurat, then in the, the challenge is that you are, each hujurah has a particularity and a uniqueness. And the people within the hujurah, they are themselves willing to share with you certain things and not willing to share with you certain things. You, you you are not inviting yourself into their room, but you are coming with all your uniqueness and particularity, and you're coming over the common things that you are willing to share with one another. But the real challenge is, as, as we talked about last halakha, that um, the the, the tendency is that we project ourselves onto others, that we we don't really come to the other to listen to what they have to say or what they have to share, but we simply, um, whatever we, the, the embodiment of our needs and our desires, we, we project onto the other, and then we are disappointed when the other doesn't fulfill these um, these projections. So on the one level, it is coming with a type of attentiveness and care uh, that you that you want to know the other for all their their uniqueness and all their richness, their diversity. But on on the other hand, that. Surah Al-Hujurat is, is warning us that if we attempt to get beyond with the other, their, the other self-representation and want to pierce and basically say to the other, well, the way that you are representing yourself, we are not willing to accept that because we think you, you know, we're going to pierce the veil and we're going to say that you are concealing this and concealing that. The corrupting effect of this is is evident. I mean, it's very interesting because it, it this and we witness this. If you want to see it in the in the most graphic way, we witness this with Islamophobia, right? It's like you, you know people approach Muslims, and regardless of what Muslims say about themselves, they say, "No, we we don't believe you. You are hiding this. You're concealing this. You're." And that's not conducive to any type of ta'arif. Um, 
It's not conducive to ta'aruf when people do it to us, and it's not conducive to ta'aruf when we do it to other people. Um, but the remarkable thing is that Surah Al-Hujurat, I mean, challenges us to think in terms of process. So if we, if we are going to talk about the ethics of process, the ethics of procedure, what type of ethics do we need to try to maximize uh, communication and sensitivity, but at the same time respect each other's boundaries and respect each other's borders? The the privacy, what what I, you know, the parameters that I don't want the other to transgress. Um, you know, it's the charge by Surah Al-Hujrat is to th think deeply and 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 systematically about issues that Allah calls upon us to achieve. Okay, thank you. Um, so the next question um, is. What is the, okay, so thank you for an amazing halakha. Is there also a gradation of the sin of gossip as per its impact that it leaves? And what is the role of the person who receives the gossip? Um, you know, go gossip is often, it, it, uh, like a lot of um, offenses, it, it takes two, it takes it, it, it is very difficult to, uh, to accomplish gossip without two participants, even if one of the participants is a passive participant, but still a participant. Um, um, and remember that the Prophet and I don't remember if we talked about this hadith or not, but when, I think we alluded to it, uh, that, you know, it's a, it, talking about someone in a deprecating fashion or a derogatory fashion, uh, if what you say about this person is not true, that's a grave offense or a, a graver offense. But even if what you say about this person is true, in other words, you, you're pointing out their faults, and there's really no objective to be, as we said last halqa, that you're, you're not assessing whether you, know, you should take this person on as a teacher or uh, um, hire this person for um, a job. or you know, In other words, it, it is nothing but using the flesh of others to entertain yourself, to keep yourself, um, uh, that is the, if it's what you say is untrue, just remember that it is a graver offense and, and if what you say is true, the ill will it embodies, that you teach yourself to think of others in terms of put downs, in terms of 
the ways that they are inferior to you, that dynamic itself will consistently make you avoid confronting your own faults. You're either going to busy yourself with your own faults or you busy yourself with the faults of others. I don't know. I mean, I was taught, and, and, I, and my life experience have shown that what I was taught, I believe is true, that you are no human being is successful in doing the, 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 the two at the same time busying themselves with their own faults and the faults of others. It's either or, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude. And the, the part of the, the issue of ghaibah is not just that it breeds distrust. It's not just that it breeds animosity, that people get hurt when they know that you're talking about them and they get resentful and they get distrustful. But at a more fundamental level, it also translates into um, uh, into obliviousness towards the self, and um, you, your your own faults go unchecked, and they're often, quite often, projected onto other human beings. Um, what you notice upon others is often exactly what you try to avoid about yourself. Very, very often. What we accuse others of is very often what is actually within us. Um, but we just have very good ways of, of not seeing that or not wanting to see that. Okay, next question. Many Muslims respond to warnings against problematic Muslim leaders and scholars by stating, we should not listen to rumors and gossip about others, and that, in fact, I am the one who is wrong because I am engaging in backbiting. Is there validity to this, or is this just the Muslim version of gaslighting? No, you, gossip, uh, the, the very notion of ghaibah, is speaking ill of someone for no valid purpose. The underscore valid. Uh, the examples that are often given, and it's just, just because people that just don't, you know, Islamic education is, the example that was often given is that if you are talking about uh, the merchandise, for instance, of a merchant, the examples often given in the sources, in the tradition, if people are talking about hiring a teacher and they're talking about whether this, the, you know, this person is good enough to teach their children or not. Uh, examples often given is if people are talking about whether to uh, entrust someone as the trustee of their, of their legacy. So they're, you know, people back then uh, would have to often entrust their property and their money with individuals. They would have to entrust their will and testament or entrust caring for their children if they die to, to certain people. And so you find in Islamic discourses a great deal about that 
this is not dis dis discussions for the purposes of do we retain, do we hire, do we not hire, do we trust, do we not trust for these specific purposes is not ghaiba. A priori, when it comes to leaders, I mean, if whether I should accept someone's leadership or not, the, the more they put themselves in the role of a public servant. Um, now, of course, you know, there are things that are relevant, and these are, that's why, you know, this element just, it's a matter of self-purification. There are things that are relevant and things that are not relevant. Um, you know, uh, just because someone is the, the imam, it doesn't mean I have the, the freedom to talk about uh, what arguments he has with his wife. Um, you know, if, if it's not relevant to his public role. But it is relevant if he's, a, if he's an abuser. He abuses his wife or mistreats his wife because, you know, someone like that, I, I might have very serious qualms about having this person being the representative of, of my community or in the, in the role of the, of, of the moral example in, in the community. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 Muslims often, I mean, it is very frustrating when I hear people come to public issues and public affairs and they, they use the Islamic moral prescriptions about ghaiba to try to silence uh, accountability. Accountability is very important and it is, it is, it is part of maintaining a healthy society. A society without accountability, without moral accountability, uh, is, is a society that's going to run, it, it will never achieve or come close to achieving any type of justice. Uh, and the laws of Ghaiba are not intended to be a barrier to accountability. That's a different matter. Um, in your instructions on accountability groups regarding implementing these halakhas, you gave an example from your personal life where you were partnered with a companion who, ad, who you admitted sins to. Does the privacy uh, that doesn't exist in a sheikh relationship, sheikh marid relationship, also apply here? Similarly, in 12-step programs, spiritual progress in defeating compulsion is contingent on honest reflection and confrontation of one's conduct with another human being because the self hides itself from itself. Many Muslims use the logic that all conduct and sins are to be private in order to disregard the benefits of these dynamics. Can we say that it is not just between a teacher and student then? Isn't there a difference between a targeted and systematic approach to confronting one's sins with another and the admittance of sins, usually from a lack of boundaries and the spirit of gossip. What about in the dynamic between a husband and wife? 
Also, especially in the era with the shortage of trustworthy and qualified teachers that are capable of guiding a useful cleansing process, aren't we shooting ourselves in the foot by not embracing other methods to achieve the same ends? I'm asking because in a past halakha, you recommended a 12-step approach, saying that it was the closest thing to what you did in your training. Yeah, no. Uh, 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 pri privacy, okay, let's be very clear. Something that is private is what what makes something private is the the intentionality to maintain something out of the public sphere. If if I share information about myself, the that other people keep private. I've made that decision to share it. It is no longer a matter. So the idea of the prohibition against the justice, against spying, is when you come and you try to ignore the intention of the autonomous intention of a human being to maintain something private. And you are piercing through that intention and acting despite the will of a person to keep something private. What you're referring to is um, a, a, an ethic that is often, I mean, that has not been, there's a little, quite, quite a bit of confusion about, in, in, especially in the modern age, about um, a, a set or concealing or keeping sinful conduct private or keeping personal offenses private. And the idea of a satr is that you should not strive to expose your brother or sister because if you, without just cause, and again, you should not strive to expose them just to embarrass them because in not exposing them might be a way for them to, for their own conscience to, to call upon them and for a way for them, for them to retreat from sin. So, the whole notion of it of is is that it's one thing if I need to expose a crime to protect others that that's the dynamics of Saturday the issues of Saturday don't come in into into it so, for instance, an abusive imam, an imam that causes, that commits sexual abuse, and I expose this person, the, the, the whole discourse on Satr would be wrongly applied. If I say, oh, you should have, well, there are victims to his conduct. And here, Satr or uh, hiding his or, or, or covering for his sins would victimize people. So obviously here, Satr is misapplied if people start talking about Ustur Alayh. 
a sutra is is, is when there danger to others is not involved, but a sin has been committed, and I'm in a position to help that person um, keep the sin private, lest that person retreat from that path. It, so, you know, if they, perhaps if they're not exposed, they won't become defiant. Uh, they won't be pushed to the, into a corner, into a defensive position. That's the logic of the idea of a set, is that we, we don't want to that we don't want to go around just embarrassing people for the sake of embarrassing them, and we don't want to put pe push people into a corner. And at the same time, if you commit a sin, remember there is the sin for committing the sin, and then there is the sin of people following you by example. If you want to avoid the sin of people following your example, then what do you do with the sin you've committed? Keep it hidden. That's the whole logic of set self set with the self. Is that if let's say you did fornication or adultery or something, and you have reason to believe that if you disclose this to others, others will follow, or others will be influenced, say, well, he did it, so why not me? Then the, the, what is incumbent upon you, what a wise person would do, is that they would not disclose it. This has nothing to do with sharing privacy, private matters like sins for the purposes of healing, for the purposes of improving, like the coupling with another person in which I, we would share everything. The point here is not to embarrass anyone. Embarrassment is not involved. Pushing someone into a corner is not involved. Inducing defiance is not involved. Having people follow by follow wrong conduct by 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 example is not involved muslims take take the, the the headlines only the headlines they take the superficial outer layers they they don't understand why i mean that, that's what's so frustrating is that this entire such thing is is very coherent and very logical and it's well vetted in the Islamic tradition it's well explained the, the how and why and so on but the way it is applied by contemporary Muslims is is in the headlines sort of labels uh, basically means just hide everything hide everything reason or no reason logic or no logic whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense that's not what we're talking about at all at all and so it's like, you know, can anyone say there's a problem with meeting with your with a psychologist and telling psychologist your private matters? But yet, with these same modern Muslims that seem to have, you know, because they just don't think about things through. They, they, they don't think there's a problem with a psychologist, but then they think there's a problem with something like a 12-step process. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. 
there, there is no problem with the psychologist because the purposes for disclosing matters is treatment, is healing, is improving. And here, similarly, when you do it as part of a growth dynamic in which you entrust, especially if it's done under the, the, the guidance of a teacher, if there is no teacher and you're doing like a 12-step, which is self-led, I think that's healthy as well. Because the, 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 if you actually read what's involved in the 12-step process, it comes the closest to what you would do with a teacher that is helping you cleanse and improve. I mean, it, it is a sort of a, a secular version of something that takes place in, in Islamic spaces. Um, of course, you know, if there's a qualified, trusted teacher to do it with, that's always preferred. But if not, uh, anything that helps you, any process like 12-step that helps you confront your own weaknesses and your own ego and look within, deeply within, and make amends is, uh, is something that Allah will reward you for. Okay, next question. Thank you, Sheikh. I'm wondering if you could clarify the relationship between verse 9 and verses 14 and 15. If I understood correctly, you said that the hypocrites were considered believers in verse 9, but do they meet the criteria presented in verse 14 and 15? If not, then does the obligation of verse 9 no longer apply, and by apply I mean to the hypocrites specifically? Well, Nine addresses if if an issue of um, public law, a, the formal dynamics as far as the state is concerned. If we if we as far as the the the, the dynamics of authority and resolution of conflict at so it's like saying, as a matter of law, and this was in fact what developed in the Islamic tradition, right? Is that if you, if you are, you say you're a Muslim, as a matter of law, you're a Muslim. You become entitled to all the rights and obligations um, that, uh, that apply to a Muslim. And nine comes in and, and as if nine says, as a matter of law, everyone that says they're a Muslim, it's like everyone that says they're a Muslim, they're a part of the ummah, the, the, the grand concept of an ummah. You should not, as Muslims, come and say, well, I don't really believe you're a part of the ummah because I don't really believe you're shahada. This is precisely what we, we see happens with, between Shia and Sunnah today, right? I mean, the, the, it, it, today you speak to so many, unfortunately, 
so many, and they they when they think of an ummah, they're very confused about this. They'll they'll if you're Sunni, you call the Shia the Rafida, and they're not a part of the ummah because you don't take their shahada seriously, and I'm sure vice versa. It goes both ways, unfortunately. Um, but even in in the in the modern context. Um, we we even see worse than that. I mean, look at the way in countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, uh, they talk about anyone they suspect of being Ikhwan, Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it's, it, they are not, so not only are the Shia not part of the Ummah, but the also the Ikhwan are not part of the Ummah. What, whoever they label Khawarij, um, are not part of the Ummah. Uh, recently, I've heard so many Sunni Muslims um, refer to the bodies of Oman as not Muslim and not part of the Ummah. But this confusion occurs when you do not distinguish between which is a the, the to every text there is a a rational connections that make sense of this text and it's it's sort of a a supra text to the text itself the reason that must be applied when reading a text to in order to make sense of a text and so clearly when it's talking about the fi'atan it is talking about a formal uh, public law process. Two parties fight. As a matter of law, you should not speculate about their faith, but only concern yourself with ending the conflict, putting in place a process for a peaceful resolution of the conflict, and ultimately, the conflict must be resolved on the basis of justice. Why? Because if you don't achieve justice, the conflict will persist. But at a private matter, I, I, you know, at the at a not even a private law matter, but even at the matter of the speaking about conscience, understand that although the law takes presumptively and it's an irrebuttable presumption treats all those who say they're Muslim as Muslims and they become a part of the ummah at the individual private level you must realize that There, that there is a qualitative difference and a process of growth for you to go from Islam to Iman. So part of, part of when I talk, if you, I'm sure you guys have heard me in the past talk a lot about the, 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 the importance of legal training or the importance of training in law. A huge part of why is so can, you can tell the difference between matters 
that can be resolved what what falls under the purview of law what law can deal with the difference between the logic of law at a public level and ethical moral law that that the state or that official organization cannot be involved with the state cannot pierce into people's conscience and say you are a real muslim and you are not a real muslim because we we have numerous examples of that the prophet والسلام, although we all know that if the prophet would if allah wanted to tell the prophet precisely i mean even the prophet knowing someone like abdullah ibn ubay that, that he was the head of the hypocrites but as a matter of law the state represented by the prophet never excluded the hypocrites from their position as part of the ummah although they they hurt the ummah and they maligned the prophet himself they attacked the prophet directly at the same time at the same time many of us if you ask us do you believe someone like ali bin abi talib did he believe that someone like abdullah ibn ubay will probably end in hellfire I personally believe that that's what Ali bin Abi Talib believed about Abdullah ibn Ubay, that he will probably end up in hellfire. But although I believe that he believed that Abdullah ibn Ubay will probably end up in, in hellfire, and although I believe that Abdullah ibn Ubay will probably end up with hell, in hellfire, but as a matter of law, throughout his life, he was treated as a Muslim citizen. And his rights as a Muslim citizens were never taken away. Although he did things that really push my level of tolerance, like withdrawing from battle, in right in the heat, you know, right in the march to battle, when he withdraws in Uhud with a big chunk of the army. I mean, that to me sounds like treason and the fact that the prophet tolerated it, it really i mean a long time ago I'll, I'll tell you um i once gave a lecture um it was at the british university in, in cairo it was an invited lecture um this is before the revolution before cc and and all the when there was still a little space for so i was talking about the idea of dissent and i was giving many examples about the 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 notion of dissent in medina and that the unmistakable and undeniable phenomena that many people took the shahada but missed prayers didn't come to prayer uh, although they lived in medina 
that many people spoke ill of the Prophet. Many people spoke ill of the Prophet and the companions that they did. And, and I was giving... And, and then I was talking about how the model of Medina dealt with Mecca when Mecca converted to Islam. Because now... The, what, the, the, the challenge in Medina doubled or, or even more than double, multiplied many fold because in Mecca many people like Hind the woman who killed the prophet's uncle converted or like Muawiyah himself converted, yes yeah, sure they converted but it is naive to assume that Hind converted and became a good Muslim Immediately, if ever, um, we we know from, and I was giving many examples of people who converted but continued to drink alcohol, people who converted but continued to criticize the prophet in Mecca, people who did the, and so on and so forth. And after I finished this this lecture, there was a, a one of the you know, bearded, he was clearly belonged to Jama'at, sitting in the audience. And he came to, to me and said, you know, yeah, yeah, your, your, your lecture was very interesting, but it is completely uh, unrealistic and naive. Uh, this, the, the Prophet might have shown this level of tolerance towards dissent because he was a Prophet. And God guaranteed them of guaranteed his success and guaranteed to protect them. But it would be idiotic for anyone in our age. And I said, Well, how about following the Sunnah? He said, Well, this is not following the Sunnah because he was a prophet. And so here the logic of exceptionalism is used very selectively. So you know, you, you when you, you follow the prophet when it comes to certain things, that's that's good. But other things, well, it's because he's a prophet, so we shouldn't follow him. And and we're, it, there are layers of the lessons of how the prophet ﷺ, under Quranic guidance, dealt with dissent tells us a great deal about the dynamics of law, authority, legal authority, legal coercion, and the state, and things like privacy, things like jurisdiction of law, but they were not sufficiently developed by contemporary Muslims. They, 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 they were explored to the extent they could be explored in the pre-modern era, and they, they, they were left wherever they were, you know, developed to different levels of maturity by different figures, and then just left where they are uh, until this, this sort of long um, interruption, the, the colonial era that in which Islamic tradition sort of became just an apologetic defensive tradition rather than 
a, a living tradition. So anyway, that, that's a long-winded way of answering the question, but Um, next question. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Thank you again for a beautiful halakha. This may have come up before in other halakhas, but if you have time, can you please answer why in certain verses of the Quran, like in uh, verse 11, ayah 11, Allah specifies groups, men and or women, separately, and in other verses addresses humans in general when commanding or enjoining them to do something? Yeah. This... The, okay, but, uh, there are... General rules apply that when where the Quran, whatever the Quran masculine form, whenever the Quran uses masculine form, it applies to men and women. Unless there's reason to believe that it applies to the masculine form applies to men uniquely, and the general rule is that it will specify. The feminine, if it wants to underscore, it's like saying, do not be tempted to, to accept women in this situation. However, there has been um, very interesting discussions about Aya. Um, and it's probably, uh, yeah, A11. Because, Ya ladina amanu la min A people from a people. Or people should not mock a people. And then, Wala nisa'un min nisa. And then it says, then it specifies women. And that structure, because women would be included in a qawm. So, why did it specify women in this context? Um, hold on. Yeah, this reminded me of something I just want to check. Um, Yeah, no, I, I don't think I, the, the point I was looking for, I can't find, but anyway. Um, and re, uh, 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 the, remember the point that I made in the past halakha that Asa an yakunu khayran munhum, that lest they, I can't, uh, anyway, that the, the, the the point is, is not that they might be better than them, but the point is, is that they might be afflicted by what they mock them about. So, the specification about women in this in this context, and there are the, 
most commentators said that well there there actually there there are two main comments that you get some said that this is because of the occasion for revelation that the what that what's um occasioned this ayah was the reported mocking of some wives of the prophet of other wives of the prophet so uh, whether it was Sophia the Yahudiya or the the um, uh, Sophia who was mocked of being a, a Jew or Um Salama mocked for being uh, short or the the reports we talked about and so that it some said that it generally specified calm from calm people a people mocking another people and then specified women in order to underscore the objectionable conduct that was being committed by women in this case the wives of the prophet against other wives of the prophet the others said that it is and especially those who had rejected that it was the the occasion for revelation was the idea of wives of the prophet not, uh, rejected that as an occasion revelation not rejected the narrative of this happening but they said that as a general matter um mocking that the Quran targeted first was the way that try that in poetry a a tribe would uh, emphasize the faults and shortcomings of another tribe so that was sort of a a well-known dynamic that the Quran comes and objects to people would write poetry about the tribe of Banu Asad and they would brag about my tribe of Banu Asad and then they would start talking about this tribe and this tribe trashing this tribe and this tribe and so on and then the second level of consistent um uh problem was what would take place at a private matter the constant um gossiping and fighting that would take place not in, in the not in the realm of the public arena by poets but by women against women and they they would claim that this was a very widespread social practice and so that the quran comes and targets both the the uh, bragging and trashing of a tribe against other tribes and the social practice of that was that was quite common um of women trashing other women in the context of gossiping and so on these are the two main interpretations that are not 
misogynistic. You know, you read in some, especially the misogynistic um, interpretations that say, well, it's specified women because women tend to gossip much more than men. That's not, I mean, that's your opinion about the text. It's not what the text says. Um, uh, the the text and I and that's what the second interpretation is what I believe is that the reason it specifies calm is because it's clearly targeting the the what constituted the public relations system of the age where people would write poetry a tribe trashing other tribes so it came and said you can't do that and then lest people think that it is just what sort of men in power and men in authority and men in in do it specifies there is no exception even at the private level um so it's both what men do and what women do and i and i think that's basically the 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 reason for it in this situation but generally speaking, when the Quran comes and specifies women, it is when there is reason to believe either there's a special rule for women or there's reason to believe that, that because of social um, habits that people might think or people might de-emphasize a certain obligation or a certain right that befall that falls upon women. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, uh, in regards to the hadith on two characteristics of goodness being thinking well of Allah and people, and the two of the worst characteristics are thinking ill of Allah and people, does this imply that there is a correlation between how you think of Allah and others? In other words, is your thinking well of Allah incomplete and insincere if you think of others, ill of others? Uh, the way I can answer this is that I'll tell you, for, in my experience, um, those who are most at peace with their God, those who Uh, have the most tranquil relationship with Allah in I, without exception I've also found them to be the most loving and forgiving um, towards other human beings I, I actually can't think of a single person um, so there's definitely a correlation, and that's because of the nature of beauty itself. Um, when um, you see, you think well of Allah, husnul zanna billah. I mean, it, it, you could you could say to yourself, "This is something I want to train myself to do." But when it actually becomes something that is part of you and then it means you've achieved a level of intimacy towards Allah 
a a a a light, a a a like a perfume that that pervades you, like a like a, a purifying light that overcomes you. And Allah becomes enough for you. Judging others um, actually becomes, and especially a, a negative judging of others, it becomes a, a, an irritant. It's like... Um, it's like um, um, something that is inconsistent with the purity of the light of the relationship that you have with Allah. Every time you are, uh, you, you there, there is a bad thought about someone. It just, it's, it, it's. Um, uh, Allah becomes sufficient. Allah becomes. Um, you're all. And when when that space is taken up by Allah, um, you don't have space for um, anger, resentment, um, taking offense. In, it, it, fundamentally, what happens is that you surrender your ego. And when your ego is surrendered to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, without an active ego, it's very difficult to think ill of others. I mean, someone might have the wrong aura and I sense the demonic about them and so I avoid them but even as I avoid them, I don't care to think ill of them. I just avoid them. But I will, you know, it, it is, it's like avoiding fire, but you don't think ill of fire. It's like you, in fact, what, the way you think about them is that you pray to Allah that they, that they, they free themselves of whatever plagues them. Um, the way I can answer that is Allah is a concept until experienced. And when experienced, Allah is a purifying light. Um, and a purifying light that fills the space completely, fully, and thoroughly. There's nothing left. Honestly, there's nothing left. There's no space for the ego. There's no space for the self. There's no space for bad thoughts. There's no space for ill will. There's no space for jealousy. Um, but it's a journey. And not just a journey, but it's a gift. And it is, it's a gift and a blessing and, and the thing that in husnu dhanni billah is that if you receive the gift, you're so full of gratitude 
your, your, everything about your being is gratitude. That you really have no space. There, there's nothing left to, to beyond your deep sense of gratitude for every minute. What's left? I mean, how 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 can you sit there and 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 be jealous or hate or or think ill of someone? Did you're just so grateful for what Allah has given you, and you're the 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 minute you feel Allah's light retracting and withdrawing an iota from you. You freak out. Um, you freak out, and 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 so you're so preoccupied with, with deserving the the Allah bestowing this blessing upon you. That that's how it is. The honest truth is is that that's how it is. Alhamdulillah, I think that's the perfect place to end. Um, this was such a, a tremendously beautiful and revolutionary surah, um, and there was so much in it. And even, you know, we didn't talk about this in the Q&A, but, you know, as you mentioned, for, for this surah to come in the ninth century and, and just, you know, put the, you know, put the foot down about racism, classism, you know, anti-privilege message, anti-nationalism, all of that, I mean, this is something that Muslims, you know, should and can absolutely own because it was such a revolutionary message. And even you made the point about, um, you know, the right to privacy being something that today we don't think about in Islamic terms. We think of it in secular terms, that this is exactly the kind of insight and knowledge into the Quran that we as Muslims can take and build upon um, for the future. There's just so much richness in this surah. Um, and even just about our relationships um, with each other and rethinking how we relate to our fellow ummah when, you know, honestly, oftentimes I think everyone's frustrated with everyone's apathy. It's so easy to fall into criticism rather than think of people as part of your body and part of, you know, um, honoring and, 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 you know, respecting is, is caring for part of your body so you don't eat into your own body. Um, but there's just so much to, to gain and even to point out like the parts um, that were so undeveloped about, um, you know, our, our scholarship on um, the, the different, uh, I guess, what is it, the, about law and, and you know, the, um, the dynamics of legal authority and coercion and the role of the state and all of that, how it was dropped at a certain point. This is such an incredible avenue for um, scholarship and future investigation. So thank you. There's just so much here that was just pure gold um, and so much to be studied for a lifetime. Alhamdulillah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, inshallah, we look forward to getting together again on Saturday with a new surah, inshallah. inshallah. And hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the week. Um, and stay, stay safe. safe, stay healthy. Pray for us that, um, you know, even though we were exposed, that we stay healthy and that whoever is ill will, will you know, come to health very quickly, inshallah. inshallah. So. 
Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Bye.